Thank you so much for joining me today, Elliot. Um, I've been, as I was saying beforehand, avidly reading uh, one of your latest papers on adversarial inference, um, predictive minds in the attention economy. And it's become, I mean, it's, I really think it's ahead of so much of the literature, which is why I really thought it was, it was a good paper to share with people because obviously there's a lot of talk about attention. There's a lot of talk about the attention economy, what AI is going to do to that situation and just kind of ramp it up. And so it's refreshing to see uh, such a well thought out perspective on it. Um, and so I suppose to start off with people, what, um, how do you think about the attention economy? You know, what is adversarial inference? Um, and maybe how does that differ from the normal presentation that we see in literature? Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, and thanks a lot for, for having me on your, on your, on your podcast. Um, so maybe let's start with kind of the normal presentation of the attention economy as you find it in a lot of the different literature. And basically, I found that everyone points to a particular chapter by Herbert Simon, kind of cognitive scientist and economist uh, from already, I think, the end of the 60s, early, early 70s. Uh, and this, this, this particular phrasing shows up in almost any kind of treatment of the attention economy. Uh, kind of an, an abundance of information will create kind of a poverty of attention. So it's the idea that kind of attention and information are kind of inversely proportional. Uh, the more information there is in the environment, the, the, the more difficult is, is it to kind of selectively allocate those 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 information selectively kind of process that that, that information that is what according to that view attention is um and so everybody kind of takes simon kind of for granted like this is this is roughly kind of the situation that we're in there is too much information in the environment and it's very difficult to kind of pay attention to the relevant information uh, in that now, I think if you look under the hood of that kind of view of, of information, there's a couple of assumptions there uh, that are based on very kind of prevalent and classical assumptions in cognitive science that are more recently have been put under on, on, on the pressure. So the idea is that well, really kind of perception and action are kind of perhaps kind of there's kind of serial process of like a parallel processing going on there at the, at the same time. But there is really this kind of core of cognition, this kind of mind part of cognition and that's a parallel process and really attention is this funneling this bottleneck of how you get from all the information out there in the environment to in the end kind of a mind kind of doing only one thing at the same uh, uh, same time and there you see that um one the the the, the um uh, it's really a perceptual kind of Kind of problem uh, the attention economy it's really this problem of getting from all the information to the single single mind there's not much to say there about about action and there is kind of the assumption kind of built into that that if you have uh, a poverty of information then supposedly uh, we should live in attention rich kind of time so before some threshold before some time in in the recent history we should have all been able to completely find kind of pay attention to exactly those things that matter to us. And if you look at kind of contemplative traditions from all over the world over the last millennia, kind of like if there's one thing they all kind of converge on is the idea that kind of controlling your mind, uh, controlling your attention is is incredibly difficult to do. Uh, and you'll find uh, people complaining out the, uh, about that kind of throughout uh, uh, throughout history. So this idea that that kind of controlling your attention is somehow the default case and only in cases of information abundance do we get problems with that um, 
yeah, that, that seemed to me very problematic to this. And that seems to be an implication of this kind of standard way of viewing the attention, uh, the attention economy. Um, so I've been, I've been kind of thinking about uh, uh, different ways of conceiving attention and conceiving, conceiving the attention economy and basically focused around the question kind of like, so what is it about the digital environments that make it more difficult to, 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 to focus and to concentrate it? Uh, yeah. The amount of information in the environment is also kind of a bit of unspecific kind of kind of kind of notion. Can we uh, um, uh, can we get to something more specific and also to something where we are more kind of the, the the active participants in this engagement with the environment rather than the kind of the passive recipients of of, of information. And so I've been looking at a couple of things, and one uh, uh, one is this idea that well, there's a, there's a very prevalent idea of, of the mind as itself a kind of prediction machine. And there's a kind of interesting parallel between kind of algorithms as prediction machines and minds as prediction machines. Uh, and if you frame the question in that way, then it seems more like, well, if I'm a prediction machine that wants to gather, sample particular kind of information from the environment and starts to manipulate the environment to receive the things I want, and if these the algorithms that underlie our, our much of our digital technologies, much of the platforms that that, that kind of that, that generate kind of things like news feeds and so, if they are built on similar similar principles and similar kind of goals that they have, and th those goals could be well spend as long as possible on, on, on uh, have this user spend spend as long a lot uh, yeah as long time as possible on social uh, on social media. Uh, how can I arrange their digital environment such that they keep there as long as possible? Then there's this idea, there's a kind of adversarial kind of relationship where I have my goals and I change, try to change the environment to kind of get those goals realized. This algorithm has its own goals and changes my newsfeed in order to get those realized. And that's a kind of adversarial kind of relationship. Um, and there it seems that, uh, um, yeah, if, if, if these algorithms have so much information, not just about me and my behavior, but also about the kind of interests and behaviors of people who are kind of in systematic ways related to who I am, that that kind of kind of tug of war seems to be seems to be lost by the by, by the individual. And so this yeah, that's that's what this the, uh, this idea of adversarial inference is supposed to capture this kind of tug of war between predictive algorithms and predictive minds and and how they uh, how they play out. Fantastic, thank you. So that was. Brilliant uh, introduction to the whole thing, and because uh, to go back a little bit, I suppose the idea of this kind of information processing bottleneck, um, the Broadbentian kind of conception of attention, um, which it, you really, I, I had never seen. I always knew there was something kind of uh, that I felt was off about the Herbert Simon and the kind of Williams takes that one up as well. Davenport and Beck kind of work with the same thing, and mm -hmm. um, that the idea that there was something missing there in a sense of this problem of action somehow being involved in it, like it, just passive information processing. Um, and But it's interesting that Broadbent was reacting to the kind of behaviorism of his time because there's this weird like link between the evolution of the attention literature and the evolution of information processing of the our information systems in general. Like Because Broadbent, that perception and communication is a book where he uses the metaphor of the communication technologies of the time, the telephone yeah, in order yeah, to yeah. describe the limited capacity view of attention that he came up with. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that you connected like the hooked, the designers of the technologies as being deeply behaviorist in the sense that they're trying to modify people's habits without much regard for agency, autonomy, 
self-determination or any of that. And so do you, in moving from the Broadbentian conception to selection for action theory, which is what we'll talk about as well within yep. predictive processing, um, is that, do you think that's an attempt to get beyond the behaviorist thing to put kind of action back into the question as well? Um, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. So, so exactly the question how different views of attention are tied up with kind of pretty big theoretical metaphysics. discussions. <laughs> yeah, metaphysical discussions. In kind of <laughs> Massive of metaphysics. No, exactly. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's super interesting to see how they, how, they, how they relate to each other. And I think also like Kahneman on his kind of quite early book on attention says something like, well, in terms of the behaviorist, right, the, the, the very word attention was kind of forbidden because it was supposed to stand for this kind of internal process. Basically, you start using attentional language when your kind of conditioning kind of story breaks down, kind of like, so okay, mm. well, if that breaks down, then we have this inner inner resource. We need, we need to be able to talk about attention at, 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 yeah. at some point. Mm. Um, but in a sense, so my feeling was when reading this, like the the the, the, the hook model and I uh, uh, think like this, this is, um, apologies, I just switched off <laughs> uh, my emails. I thought I switched it all up. Um, oh, so let's get back to uh, to the. Mm -hmm. So if you're reading Ayal's um, hook model, right? There's there's much to kind of oppose against this because basically it's a guide how to how to get people hooked on your, your your product, right? It's just plain out manipulation. Uh, and uh, with very little kind of concerns for kind of ethical dimensions and so in there. But it seemed to me that the kind of, that he had a better grip on the phenomenon than, than many of the people who write about kind of attention, the attention economy, kind of in a more critical way. Kind of have. So this idea, he has, he introduces the idea of kind of, well, sure, sometimes you have uh, uh, external triggers. So these are the kind of the things we know, kind of notifications, et cetera. Um, um, uh, things that uh, things in the environment that are supposed to kind of capture our our attention, but he says like okay, well yeah, if that's the idea of competition for attention, then that 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 works only so far. But in the end, you only perceive those kind of kind of stimuli when you're already engaged with a particular device or the particular kind of technology. Um, so what is really kind of the, the kind of the, the the next step is to not go for external triggers but internal triggers kind of these internal urges that you have whenever you have nothing to do or when you're doing something and you get a bit bored suddenly there is this urge to check check your emails check your facebook check 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 whatever um and how to kind of manufacture those urges in the way that they connect up with the use of your product that that that's what the ayas uh, uh, model is is about and that has indeed a much more kind of close connection between between kind of perception and action than these kind of classical kind of kind of more information processing views of attention uh, attention have so i thought that was in terms of the phenomenon much more to be gained uh, in, in 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 kind of more ayal kind of way of thinking but at the same time, of course, kind of like that seems to give up on any kind of notions of, kind of agency or the fact that we could even try yeah. to control our attention or if we could even try to yeah. kind of live up to kind of the aspirations of kind of things we call autonomy or so. Um, and so I was hoping that kind of the predictive processing literature in relation with, with, with you know, developments in, in what's called embodied cognition that also have typically worked with a much closer and more direct connection between perception and action, that those could kind of end capture the kind of the, the phenomena that Ayala is talking about, and at the same time have these broader resources to to, to think about uh, uh, agency and autonomy and, and, and so on. 
Yeah, because you point out that split in the attention literature that Johnson and Fernandez look at in between cause theories and effect theories, and that the kind of split between that is like the voluntary top-down attentional control. Like, where is that located? And the kind of mechanism accounts, like I suppose the Broadbentian or the limited resources, have a kind of homunculus smuggled into them that they don't really flesh out. Um, and so when you start to look into it, it, it gets a bit... It's hard to defend, um, whereas I suppose predictive processing doesn't try and reduce it to one part of the brain. It's it's the entire, it's like a dynamical system. Which, right, yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Okay. No, exactly. So, 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 um, so in the end, something like voluntary attention, of course, is something that we would want to explain, kind of like it, 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 it is something that we, in, in some sense, can, 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 can do at least, and cognitive science is in the business of kind of finding a good explanation for this. And many of these kind of older theories of attention and kind of like cognition as information processing in particular have this idea of kind of one area or one, one kind of module or whatever that is kind of central, central cognition. That's why it's all coming together. And that's really kind of the mind that kind of thing. And if that, that, if that thing makes a decision such as where to, where to pay attention to, where to direct your kind of sensory organs to, then that's kind of top down voluntary uh, attention. Uh, the problem is that that's kind of scientifically there's there's not much evidence for such a kind of place where it all kind of comes comes together and philosophically it's kind of kind of, kind of problematic problematic as well indeed that it seems to look like okay well now we have basically something with all the characteristics of a full-blown agent kind of located somewhere inside the brain to explain for agency or kind of voluntary uh, uh, attention that 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 seems to be flatly circular um so so, so indeed, like that, that is a problem with with these kind of cause theories of tension. They kind of reify this notion of attention is kind of on, on, at, 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 at the at the disposal of this kind of central entity to kind of allocate wherever you see fit. That's very much also in the spirit of kind of the way Simon writes about attention, and that that mm -hmm. that that seems to be, I mean, I guess both wrong and outdated. But, but yeah, um, and so then turning to 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 predictive processing. Um, Indeed, I think that the, if there's one kind of aim of predictive processing is to give a kind of completely distributed view of how all these cognitive processing uh, processes work, and that is not very much tied to specific models doing specific things, but the kind of just basically something like error minimization is supposed to kind of do do all these kind of psychological jobs in, in particular kind of kind of kind of ways. And what I, what I found interesting is that this kind of Kind of more critical, early critics of this of this Broadbentian view of attention, like people like Alan Alport uh, 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 and so, that they sometimes mm -hmm. point to these kind of predictive processing ideas as well, saying, "Okay, these are actually allies in this in this idea of eradicating this homunculus from the, from the brain and actually thinking, uh, yeah, control is something that is distributed throughout the whole brain. There's no one seat of the brain where okay, this is where where, where where perception or attention gets gets controlled, but for someone like Alport, it's really kind of like, well, it's Control is more about context sensitivity and seeing like what context do you let your behavior be guided uh, be guided by. This shouldn't, and that that could be distributed over different parts of the, uh, the of the brain without having to assume this kind of inner homunculus. Yeah, I'm gonna throw some crazy stuff at you now in terms of that uh, particular <laughs> topic because it's something it's because it often gets linked to like executive function or somehow it's in the prefrontal cortex that there's this you know homunculus or whatever. But an interesting, I don't know if you're familiar with Russell Barclay's work on ADHD, 
So no, no, really. No, he no, no, basically yeah. looks at ADHD as a failure of executive functioning, a failure of self-regulation. And he describes people with ADHD as having like a myopia in time. Like they can't generate the future hypotheses in order to guide, to inhibit. He looks at all self-control as inhibitory. So yeah. you're inhibiting one set of action policies, motor control routine or whatever, and allowing another one to take place. Um, yeah. And you can look at this, I think he looks at it in kind of a Vygotskyan way that this evolved from like, or Vygotsky looks at speech in terms of that we learn to speak externally and then we learn to suppress speech in order to think. And he makes a similar argument about um, behavior that we learn to inhibit behaviors in order to generate possible other ones. And yeah. I, I, this, because again, I've heard the executive functioning thing is kind of, some people say it's bankrupt. Some people say there's nothing in it. Um, but I'm curious because he has great success in treating people with ADHD, which is like an inability to regulate attention. Like that's, I mean, yeah. it couldn't be any yeah. more like yeah. the problem of the attention economy. And yeah. he treats them with writing, which is really interesting. Like he gets them to externalize everything. So yeah. write down yeah. everything in order to keep yourself accountable because they can't keep themselves accountable internally so you're bootstrapping i suppose their self-regulation with yeah. all these by changing their environment yeah um and so i yeah i wonder what you think about that not the the executive the inhibitory executive functioning as as a kind of uh locus of agency yeah no it's good yeah um so i've i think for a long time i've been just very skeptical about the very idea of executive control exactly for the reasons we just talked about right so that it seems to be like well it seems to require a kind of kind of a CEO, kind of a central executive, kind of like that that does the regulation, and it, it can fail to do so. But then you still kind of yeah. presuppose this kind of thing, and then when it's going right, then, then there there is this thing supposed to sit there. I think there's a different way of looking at it um, that is more to do with with kind of balancing priorities, right? And so indeed, like this this so this this view of a kind of uh, as you say a kind of kind of myopia, kind of like myopia in time where you only focus on on one thing and tend to forget kind of other goals that you also have but but that that could kind of shift your behavior away from what you're doing now but you kind of tend to tend to downplay them deprioritize them um yeah that 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 you can explain that i think without without having this homunculus and if that's what you call kind of executive control that kind of balancing of different priorities over time in a kind mm -hmm. of context sensitive way then that that seems to be completely fine and i think I think if you have this 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 view that that some of the embodied cognition people have that Ellen Alport also has that 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 you really that there's just not really this kind of homunculus kind of kind of thing, then it becomes kind of tempting to see uh, that 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 something like executive control is indeed from the very beginning something that is scaffolded by the environment. So indeed, this Vygotskyan line where you say, "Oh well, actually." The voice mm -hmm. of your parents in guiding your behavior, kind of like that. That's the first kind of scaffold. At some point, that gets uh, uh, internalized, and you kind of like almost simulate yourself to that voice of your parents. Yep. And what we call executive control is exactly that—that that kind of socially scaffolded structure that 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 that, that you grow into, and that becomes part of the structure of your of your of your, of your mind and the structure of your behavior. Um, and then that makes complete sense. That kind of like yeah, we we do have. We do have structures. We always had had, had, had structures that scaffold our, our attention and our and our behavior. And 
I think we'll probably get to this, but one 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 way of conceiving of the current state of, of, of being is that we carry out carry around devices that provide very little scaffolding. They provide access to all sorts of information, all sorts of action, kind of like with an effortless swipe of a finger. Um, which is if you have this idea that executive control is something that is supported and scaffolded by the environment, then that's just a very bad bad idea because they what we require is actually a kind of set of good constraints to allow us to make this prioritization. And uh, having everything available at all time is just not such a such a good scaffold. It was very interesting. I spoke to Sebastian Watzel. I don't know if you know his work on attention. Yeah, but no, he, exactly. uh, yeah, yeah. he did had a very similar point that like attentional or social media, big, a big problem with them as well is that they're like every every kind of space mushed together. You know what I mean? Like they're not, it's like a library, you go there to get books, but this is also like a pub and a nightclub and a social place and like a government place where people give speeches and everything's just squished into this one platform. So it's very hard for your brain to say like, this is for this or it's for that it's for yeah. everything so yeah it, it kind of it, it sucks you in in that sense because you can't differentiate what it's actually to be used for but to return to the agency question i sorry i'm bothering you about this but i think you're the guy to talk to in terms of um i'm also speaking to adam saffron i don't know if you know adam's work. oh yeah yeah because yeah. he yeah. wrote a paper on very on the um a, a similar type yeah like bottom-up agency in this way but he is kind of bringing homunculus back into it in a sense of that they're models that we create or represent in order to inhibit those behavioral patterns. So like this idea that our agency involves self-modeling. So when we can model ourselves, then we can start to choose between different plans of action. You know, you can run the kind of simulation of saying like, oh, I'll do this or I'll do that. And I predict this outcome will happen or this outcome will happen. Yeah. And we can yeah. kind of choose between them. Um, and you see that in a lot of the wisdom traditions as well. I mean, stoicism has one uh, embodying the sage or contemplating the sage where you imagine what a sage would do, like what would Jesus do? And then you model their behavior you model your own behavior based on their behavior, which affords you like new self-transcendence and patterns of action. So I, I, I'm thinking, because I'm writing about agency, so I'm trying yeah. to figure out, you know, how would you actually normatively describe that? Um, is any of that landing for you? Or do you think that's, you know, is that off? Yeah, mark? yeah. No, so 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 on the on the self-modeling bit, so so I'm I'm... I'm not quite sure if the kind of right. So we can sketch the Vygotsky route that says that says like okay, mm -hmm. we'll have this external parents kind of peers kind of scaffolding. You internalize that, and that that starts to become the structure for your own kind of kind of right. Basically, it, it's a bit like the sage route where you kind of like okay, what 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 would my parents say in this situation? It's like authority say, well, voices that you aggregate yeah. together. Exactly. Into a say, like, don't, don't, don't do these dangerous things. Or oh, maybe maybe yep. I then exactly do it or just refrain from it because of this. Um, and this, this, and, and so I guess, I guess somebody like Adam Saffron might say that, uh, yeah, that's exactly what self-modeling is supposed to, supposed to capture this kind of, this kind of Fagotskian kind of, kind of, kind of route. Um, I'm, 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 I'm not too convinced that, that, that that's the right way to go and that these two ways kind of sure. completely, uh, 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 collapse. I think, um, with this kind of self-modeling kind of everything kind of starts to basically, the agent starts to have a completely internal kind of model of itself and how it would act in the environment internally that it can kind of run. You haven't completely, yeah, you need, like, as you say, you have a kind of homunculus back and a kind of internal representation of the whole world kind of back in your, in, 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 in your head. I don't think that's 
necessary, but perhaps, and I, and I think that's a different, an, an interesting, at least a different, an interesting different kind of route compared to the Fagotskian kind of, kind of route that really kind of has this kind of connection with the outside world from the very beginning. And I think also until the very, um, until the very end. Um, and about kind of, yeah, the normativity of, of agency. I mean, yeah, of course that, that, that's, 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 that's a super big, um, uh, topic. Um, so what I find find super interesting is this is this kind of cultural idea that attention is or the control of attention is supposed to be both kind of normatively kind of ideal and also kind of descriptively feasible or so right and of course like if, if it's descriptively unfeasible it's, it's kind of a bit difficult to make it a normative ideal but so so this this cultural idea that kind of what we should be able to control what we pay our attention uh to and i think evolutionarily there's good reasons to to suppose that that no we're not we, we, we why, why why would you right i mean kind of like if if mm. something happens in the environment it's kind of good to kind of shift attention and pay attention Have to, an to reflex yeah, exactly so so we kind of ecologically we kind of set up to kind of be interrupted by all sorts of things and kind of also to interrupt ourselves to check every once in a while kind of like okay we're doing this one thing now but is, is everything else still going still good yeah okay then we can continue so it's so this yep. kind of this kind of self-interruption which is almost by definition not a kind of intentional action but something that just happens yep. to you this kind of internal urges that happen to you all the time that seems to be ecologically kind of completely kind of kind of uh, uh, understandable and, and in a sense also kind of desirable um and so from that perspective kind of our, mm. our very capacity to just sit in a room and read and write is kind of that that's actually the old situation and like okay well what yeah what kind evolved. of experiment what, what kind of environmental scaffolding is required in order to actually pull those kind of things uh, uh those kind of things up so i think i tend to kind of perhaps yeah yeah kind of sympathize a little bit more with, with kind of like the, the kind of ADD, ADHD kind of kind of line of thinking where kind of like, oh, perhaps mm. this kind of like this state of distraction is actually a more natural state of, 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 of being. And the question is kind of like, if we want to live in a society like this, how can we kind of somehow constrain su such minds and kind of scaffold such minds such that they can sit still and read a book for a couple of hours? That's 100%. I Because I kind of tend to think that the default is actually attentional deficit like the default state is is yeah, just yeah is, it's actually hard to control naturally i think the it's cultural evolution that has draw, driven our ability to and you see that with like what you mentioned before like the stoicism is a good example buddhism is all about agentic control and they're they're paths of discipline and they're very traditional and there's practices and you know there is an entire almost way of life in order to be able to to do that um but i think in the modern secular world we've kind of been left with a certain level of inability to scaffold those things to create environments that actually scaffold that and james williams pointed that out he called them cultural commitment devices i think in his work um that the lack of that leads to the opportunity for predatory attentional technologies essentially because the attentional technology is scaffolding our attention but not yeah. in a way that's necessarily conducive to our well-being or human dignity or you know autonomy or any of these kind of our democratic discourse <laughs> like any of these ideals um and so i suppose what i'm interested in is how could we rebuild some of that infrastructure to actually support that yeah yeah 
yeah, nice uh, scaffolding. Yep. Yep. So positive yep. scaffolding versus, yep. I suppose, what you'd mentioned, hostile scaffolding. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And so, so I, th I think I think the first step is to kind of the the to realize the precariousness of agency. Also, right. So, so I think mm. a lot of a lot of the cultural debate has been kind of okay. We just are more or less rational agents. We can make decisions, and so. Yeah. If you give people a different set of options, yeah, they might make, make different kind of decisions, but they wouldn't really undermine their kind of their very decision making or so in the first place. Yeah. And from a kind of more scaffolded kind of perspective, where you say like, well, it's it's we are only kind of those those sort of agents in virtue of this environmental scaffolding, then then the whole situation looks a bit more precarious. Kind of like, okay, actually, if you start systematically changing that environment and making it a hostile environment, then then this might undermine indeed our very capacity to to make make to do, do things in the first place, to kind of make a, make actions in the first place, and I think that is indeed like James Williams points out as well, kind of in the in, in I think yes, this tripartite structure in his book. When the third one is really kind of like at some point you just you don't even know what's 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 right anymore, and you can't even kind of conceptualize decisions uh, um, anymore. Um, and so for me, in terms of a positive answer, kind of like. And that, that, I think that's where I depart a little bit from, from, from at least what, what James Williams is saying in the in, in, in the book. Mm -hmm. and he's uh, some places he's kind of advocating for saying, okay, well, if we only would reduce the amount of information in our environment, then we would kind of regain these kind of kind of kind of things. And I think from 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 my perspective, it wouldn't just be about although kind of putting barriers between you and information that might might be a good start, but it's not just about Kind of reducing information. It is indeed about finding this particular kind of kind of kind of, kind of scaffold. Um, and one step there is is indeed. I think that that resonates a bit with what you were talking about with uh, with Sebastian Watzel as well. Is is realizing how much spaces are scaffolding our our our, our decision making. So I, I sometimes indeed like make make the things like if if I'm if I'm having two rooms uh, uh, at home, a kind of uh, uh, work, work kind of place, kind of library kind of thing, and a kind of play kind of place, reading the news, kind of newspapers all around, kind of things. At every moment, I could kind of get up from my desk uh, while writing and go to the other room, but it would be a kind of decision. It would be uh, leaving the place. It would, and, not, and and so it's possible. It's not. It's not kind of impossible. It's not blocking me or so in one way. But the fact that they are one room away, kind of puts a, puts a, put them at a little bit of kind of a phenomenological kind of distance or so, like a little bit kind of lesser listing kind of coordinates. Um, and of course, what these technologies kind of offer, kind of devices like we have now, is that, that the switching between these different rooms, kind of me reading a newspaper versus me writing a paper, um, happen completely seamlessly. Um, and so having having some some understanding and perhaps also respect for the way different places scaffold my decision making and just put particular options kind of for for the time being uh, like a bit further away. Uh, how, yeah, how the structure environment does that, I think that 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 will be a really important thing to bring into the kind of design of our technologies. Uh, and so I, I mean, very practically, what well, one thing I've been trying to do is been having different different users on my computer kind of like and saying like oh i want to have these kind of programs and these kind of things kind of 
tied to one user and then sure i can switch to kind of like uh, to this other user where where uh, i can can actually read the news and check facebook and so and go go back and forth between them but that provides enough of a constraint such that you don't have this mindless kind of shifting and you don't give in to this kind of internal uh, internal triggers um, all these things are of course yeah. co completely difficult to, to to do because all the infrastructure is built kind of like to have all these options available at all, the at, all of the time to, to do exactly the opposite but i think making that switch kind of understanding that that our agency is really helped by constraints rather than by more by more more choices uh that that will be the first step yeah that i mean and it's such an interesting even for me studying i mean i did a literature review there on like all the ethical issues of social media and looked at like over 2000 papers and like read in depth like 200 and still i take out my phone more than i would like <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, yeah, there's no yeah, connection yeah. between the like propositional understanding and the procedural like playing out of the behavior loops like i still have to separate myself from it physically and like use like a lockbox or like have time where it's in another room and um, which kind of shows like what a level this is working on and i wonder there was something that you didn't it wasn't mentioned in the paper but i wondered what you thought about in terms of active inference and affect like on what level the positive emotion because like dopamine the in the literature it's often related to a lot that dopamine's driving a lot of these feedback loops yeah. like the infinite scroll the kind of anticipatory reward um and does that uh, does that come into your thinking is that something you've you've considered in it i was curious about it yeah so i i, I haven't really thought much about it specifically in terms of like the, the neurotransmitters and so right so so i know mm -hmm. that both kind of reward and novelty are associated with 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 the dopamine and i think this kind of general active inference framework kind of gives a nice kind of uh kind of way of integrating that and having it make sense that kind of one neurotransmitter kind of combines both of these both of these roles um and i guess in terms of affects um that there's a couple of things to 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 disentangle there right so so one one um one thing is this notion of uh, in the paper, call it uh, attention as a salience, as a kind of, and that's almost like how much does a particular action possibility uh, stand out to you, kind of phenomenologically, and uh, so it could be a craving to an urge to kind of check uh, check something on your phone or so. Uh, I would say like those kind of things that you could kind of model as being a prediction error or so, but they 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 are very much uh, uh, effective, right? So so they're they're kind of an in the moment kind of quite targeted kind of disattunement or kind of uh, 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 kind of kind of in phenomenology sometimes people call this kind of a lack of optimal grip, but kind of like ah, you, you're being drawn towards a better opt optimum or so, and it's very hard to kind of resist that uh, uh, that pull. So these are kind of like in the in in the moment kind of effects that drive our a lot of our kind of kind of kind of, kind of our, our decision making, our, our action selection. And in that sense, I see kind of predictive processing very much tied up with this kind of more effective kind of kind of, kind of notions. Mm. Uh, there's the other question, of course, about how things like moods and these kind of more prolonged, more kind of kind of stable kind of things kind of influence uh, decision making. And there, I think uh, there's also this kind of back and forth between if you're in a negative mood kind of you're more likely to kind of kind of start scrolling and keep scrolling and the fact that you keep scrolling actually also kind of reinforces that that, that mood so there you also have a kind of effective back and forth between 
between these kind of scrolling behaviors and 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 mood. But the, these are probably a bit more complicated and less directly kind of targeted, like like the like the salience ones. Mm. And yeah, because I'd heard Friston describe kind of positive affect as entropy reduction. That it's in the cybernetics literature, anyway. It's moving towards a valued goal. Tra- right. Positive yeah. motion is tracking yeah. your movement yeah. towards a value goal. And Friston argued that that was because of entropy reduction fundamentally. It's like free energy reduction. Um, and yeah, so I wonder, I mean, because that goal structure is kind of running, because again, what you talked about, like the algorithm is playing out a goal, essentially, that's trying to keep you in that kind of feedback loop while you're potentially searching for epistemic rewards. And that's kind of where this the conflict is playing out in social media because it's the curation algorithm. So in, I think that kind of leads maybe to the relevance question a little bit, but I don't, I think you want to, did you want to say something on the entropy reduction question? Uh, I think, um, yeah, I think two, two things. So, so, so yeah. So one, um, I guess, I guess, I guess some, some, some people working on the free energy principle and predictive processing and this kind of whole, whole set of ideas talk about the difference between the low road to kind of predictive processing and the high road and kind of one one the high road gives kind of very principled kind of account of why everything cognitive is exactly the way it is based on some uh, certain set of principles uh, and the low road is more like okay well let's let, let let's assume this kind of set of ideas about prediction error minimization and and and, and see how it can be a lens to kind of uh, to make sense of particular kind of kind of phenomena, such as kind of attention and digital technologies, and so, uh, um, and so in, in in the past, I've been writing a little bit more on the kind of high road high road approach to kind of the mm-hmm. the, the energy principle, but I think this is very much a kind of kind of kind of kind of low road approach, and um, I'm 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 interested in this question about how if, if there is a way to kind of like find a direct connection between positive affect and particular very abstract dynamics in, in, in mathematical structures of, of, of entropy reduction. Uh, that, that's an interesting open question, but I, but, I, but I think much of the, much of the story here can be bought without, without, without buying into, into, into those, those mm-hmm. more high, high roads ideas. I think what, what, one other thing just to briefly pick up on is this, is this, so one half of the paper is about kind of adversarial inference in which there's kind of a clearly kind of, there are clearly baddies kind of like, like kind of, kind of algorithm set up to lure us into doing things that are not aligned with our personal level beliefs uh, and, and goals and kind of aspirations and so. Uh, but there is, I think there's a different story as well, which is that, that if you take something like an email inbox, right, which is a kind of structure that is not adversarial, it's built adversarial at all, right? I mean, my, my email provider has no kind of uh, 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 monetary gain to be made if I get more in more emails or spend more time on, on, on Outlook or whatever. Um, but it's still a kind of structure in which messages, information comes in with, with very different kind of rewards. Some of them are just like, oh, forgot to unsubscribe from this newsletter, kind of like bin right away. Some of them might be kind of life-changing kind of decisions and they come in continuous throughout the whole day kind of, uh, um, and, and you need to check actually to figure out what's what, what, what's what. And so that's that's not a kind of adversarial structure, but it's still one that it's kind of set up to develop checking habits to, towards, because you're still kind of like, well, there might be something interesting in here, and well, yeah, I, I did indeed check five minutes ago, but in the meantime, there's no there's no rule that says nothing interesting has has, has come in. So that structure of just having continuous kind of variable reward, kind of potential variable reward, kind of coming in, kind of that that sets up the conditions for developing things like like checking habits, and so so. 
I think at least some of the adversities that we that we encounter in digital environments are not even kind of like results of big bad companies kind of like and, and the business model underlying kind of attention economy, but just this mismatch between kind of the kind of kind of agents that we are and 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 or that we think we are and, and and that we actually are. And so it might make more sense, for example, in terms of scaffolding your your environment to to constrain but yeah. Ideally, also the amount of emails coming in, but just even the temporality. If you say, well, they only come in on every uh, a couple of times a day or every whole hour or so, then it wouldn't make sense to kind of keep checking every every five minutes or ten minutes or whatever. But you would kind of probably kind of track those more regular kind of kind of, kind of intervals. Um, so so yeah, so so even without the kind of the the, the adversarial kind of big 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 structures, there is there is still this kind of mismatch going on. Yeah, and it, that's such an. I've heard that done in email inboxes of kind of reducing it to like one hour a day of when all your emails come in at the same time, so you don't spend all your time checking. It. And I think is it is it a problem with design? Because I kind of tend to think I don't know. It's probably a bit of a generalization, but there is a very behaviorist kind of bend to design and to a lot of the tech space as well. Even in the AI developers, a lot of them seem to have this very kind of determinist model of human beings that's not particularly respectful of people's agency or self-determination and it's kind of spawned another industry of people they're trying to build tools to afford people those kind of self-regulatory things but I, i'm kind of interested in like what is the move from so like if you could teach designers like hey there's you've got this behaviorist model of people here's the predictive processing model of people you know what would the difference be there in terms of how they think about the people that they're designing for Nice. That that's that's a super good question. Um, so um, let me think for a moment. So so I, I think what they encounter in kind of the design literature are exactly the things that we that we basically started this conversation uh, with. Kind of like either people are extremely behavioristic, and it's kind of like how can we nudge people, kind of guide people, tell people, somehow convince, no, not even convince, but just kind of like make people do things that are good for them, basically. And that's completely kind of behavioristic, kind of like in terms of kind of conditioning or whatever, kind of like set up the rewards in such a way that they do those things, that they do exercise, kind of that they do make a particular kind of amount of steps per day, kind of those, those kind of things. And the alternative is, is a pretty strong cognitivism, uh, I think, where um, um, Basically, so 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 um, Tim Wu in his in his book The Attention Merchants has this example of the of, of of the invention of the remote control, and this was really kind of a device that was meant kind of like okay, there's now commercials on television uh, and uh, multiple channels, and so we invent the remote control such that people can really decide what they want to watch with as little effort as as possible kind of explicitly kind of not even just branded but also kind of designed as a kind of autonomy enhancing device and of course yeah tim Wu's kind of kind of analysis there is kind of like well, it went became so easy kind of like to to use this remote control that people don't end up watching exactly what they want but they just end up kind of channel hopping and channel serving the the the, the whole time so i think the main lesson there is that 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 people are opportunistic right that what that people don't come to situations with kind of fixed goals and then 
look for means to realize those goals. But what you want and what you think is relevant is depending on what's what's possible. And that requires exploration of the environment. And if you build environments in which there is infinite amount of, amount of things possible, then yeah, what do people start doing? They start to scroll those environments to figure out what actually is relevant and kind of like basically never stop, never stop doing that. Um, so understanding that people are opportunistic and therefore it's kind of good to constrain their opportunities such they can actually do those things that, that, that they actually want to do. I think that that that's the design click that, that that is to be taken, and that is this kind of middle road between that is in a sense kind of kind of allowing going with the behaviors and saying like yeah much much of our behavior is this kind of direct connection between perception and action. Uh, that's what the cognitivists are wrong, and the behaviors have a better story. But that doesn't mean that we should kind of give up on things like agency uh, 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 and so, but find ways to scaffold agencies into our environment such that these kind of behavioristic kind of creatures can can have these kind of loftier kind of goals and and, and kind of uh, achieve some degree of, of, of autonomy and so there i think i hope that a bit of predictive processing a bit of embodied cognition uh, views of relational autonomy and so all kind of can can contribute a little bit to kind of have a story of agency and autonomy that's uh, that's both feasible and aspirational so and that that that's where uh, I think both the behaviors and the cognitivists kind of have, have have a less good story to tell. Mm, I think that really is the next where I see if there was to be another iteration or another draft of a lot of these things, and that was a better one rather than a worse one, which is also possible. Um, that that would be what needs to be considered more. I mean, some of the literature there's interesting metaphors in terms of like that social media is like the car before we had a lot of safety structures on highways, before we had seatbelts, before we had speed limits. Um, and so people are just racing around in the information landscape, you know, ruining themselves and it's having these big negative effects. But really what's necessary is a rebuilding of the infrastructure, which is unfortunate because a lot of the regulatory environment isn't really doing that. It's more focused on the content regulation at the end yeah. to say yeah. like, you know, what what's yeah. good content, what's bad content. But without realizing that the infrastructure is really involved in what content is promoted, what content people post. Um, so it, it does seem to be a real choice point for that. And what do you think in terms of AI? Um, do you think about what effect that's going to have? I mean, I don't want to say like the, the apocalypse version, but the, because uh, AI, I tend to think of social media as like the first public facing encounter with AI, like Tristan yeah. Harris's argument yeah. that this was like the first time people met large scale AI in the public sphere. And I've seen how that's gone in pretty in good detail. And so do you think the future of AI will be similar stuff? Like, are we just going to enslave ourselves to like a fake behaviorist AI god that can just, you know, make us, you know, give us infinite distractions um or do you think you know it's gonna be something we haven't thought of right I'm yeah curious. yeah 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 no good so so when i read the literature i find and i'm a bit surprised by the amount of fatalism that 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 that, that you kind of see people like, someone like um uh, harari in Hobo day which was so right to just say well yeah look we we we, we are uh, algorithms in essence and and AI is an algorithm in essence and look there's absolutely no reason to believe that we will kind of 
be better algorithms than AI. So we're doomed, basically. We're kind of like, we're, we're this little stepping stone and, and kind of like AI will take over. And I think I have the feeling that that's a kind of general kind of sentiment, kind of like, oh, we really stand no chance. Uh, but I don't see why, why not? I think I think many of these things that are taken for granted as kind of like automatisms are really kind of decisions made by made 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 by people. Um, and it, it it it's 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 an open question how we want to kind of uh, uh, um, what kind of role we want these AIs to play in our in our in, in, in our society. So I don't see any reason for 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 fatalism. Um, I just hope that the discussion. Kind of and on regulation and so is 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 kind of based on the right kind of descriptive premises and, yeah, and as you say kind of like that's definitely the <laughs> right yeah 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 that's uh, a key question as, as you say right so things like fake news and so kind of like take a take up a lot of kind of kind of the regulatory attention and so and how can we how can we like can we regulate content or so <laughs> and i think i think what i try to think about here is more like so how do how basically kind of like how 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 do these technologies as a whole kind of change our our, our field of affordances a kind of a kind of realm of kind of possibilities such that something just keeps standing out as relevant that are actually not really relevant and other things that are actually relevant kind of kind of it's very difficult to kind of perceive them as being the right thing to to, uh, to do and there there is more a question like how do these kind of kind of technology provide a set of particular choice architecture that that, that allows for doing many things at the same time kind of all context kind of collapse together which makes it just cognitively just very hard to kind of keep your mind on what's 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 relevant uh and that's i'm not sure i think there's there's a good normative debate to be to be had um one one source of hope i think is that a lot of the companies that build more like platform so right so if something like 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 apple that that that, that builds the kind of the the, the, the operating systems in which we, we use on kind of kind of kind of phones and computers they are not necessarily contenders in the attention economy right so it's what 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 matters for 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 apple is whether i buy a computer or not not whether i spend as much as time as i can on the on that particular kind of device so I think they have a bit more leeway to kind of actually reorienting these these devices using the right kind of descriptive framework, saying okay, well maybe maybe indeed we would want to make it possible kind of to uh, navigate different spaces and different different rooms on the digital environment such that we can put some of these distracting things a little bit more at the at, at, at background without having to block them kind of all uh, all around. So to think together a little bit more about how to how to build agency enhancing digital technologies and there i think neither ai or the attention economy necessarily stands in the way of that project but just kind of being a bit more observant about kind of human psychology in a sense but that's i think that's actually what is standing in the way is actually our understanding of ourselves like it's a weird paradox that really the obstacle here isn't like if the technologists had a better way i think they would actually do it i mean if you had technologies that would promote well-being and people like using them i mean surely that's better press uh down the line right. but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it is i think it's the descriptive limitations and which is why i thought your paper was so striking because it feels like it's on that edge like there i've been reading tons of stuff man but it feels like that just that that sense of the connection between agency and autonomy which requires this big picture metaphysics as well which is the problem with a lot of the attention literature is is that 
I, you run into like three massive philosophical problems, like the hard problem of consciousness, free will and determinism, and the problem of perception. So like you have to solve, I have a, something that solves all three of them in a sense to actually, you know, deal with it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, so, so in a sense, I started thinking about attention kind of like five, five, six years ago. Or so I think, and thinking, reading like like James Williams's book and something like, oh, there, there, there is obviously there's something to say about this from a kind of predictive processing and body cognition kind of perspective. And I think that that has a better grip on these kind of issues than than what I see now. But but yeah, the, to 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 make it all come together and these kind of hurdles and kind of like all the different moves available in the attention literature and lots of people who just don't believe in attention in the first place or something and kind of like how to how to play that field and how how to bring it all together such that you can kind of um, yeah I mean it's basically like such you have a slightly better understanding of the kind of the descriptive playing field that can support a normative debate kind of like it's been, yeah, it's been quite a roller coaster kind of trying to. <laughs> trying to put it all together and as i was rereading the paper for today i was also like okay there is there is so much still to be done and so much open holes and kind of like open places to, to kind it of is it's incredible because it, you're like this is all his solution to the problem of perception that has become very truthful i think there's a philosophical tradition in that that has a lot to say as well that's kind of been slowly forming but i do think it is this whole you know it's going to require a new an entirely new philosophy anyway um that will have a history of course but like it, it's never do you think it involves kind of the unification of science and philosophy in a sense like do you think with the current this is a, fine we'll just finish this question i don't know why i'm, I'm sorry i don't I often get to say these things out loud so uh, do you think within the current scientific method could a unified theory of attention well how I, I don't think they've been able to i mean no yeah what do you think a unified theory of attention would require, or do you think you've presented one in in uh, are you trying oh, no, to? no 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 <laughs> uh, no no I definitely don't don't want to claim to have presented uh, to have presented one um, so so um, I mean I think one one of my initial like in my PhD work one one of the reasons to 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 get interested that kind of feels, at least to me as a master's student, it felt unprecedented. Kind of like, okay, this is a kind of revolutionary kind of kind of, kind of approach. Mm. Um, I'm, 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 I'm not sure that in the end, kind of, kind of, kind of, this version of predictive processing will be will will be dead. But I think the aspiration of providing theories of cognition that are kind of like even if they're pretty pretty minimal but that are at least kind of like throughout having systematic kind of explanations of how perception action attention memory prior experience how that all hangs together or so right so so much of cognitive science is kind of like i build a theory of memory of episodic memory or so and there's a little nice nice kind of model of it but kind of like, oh, how does it hang together with the rest of the kind the of architecture? Thing, right? Kind of, oh yeah, there's here perception, and there's there, there's action, and kind of somewhere in between the memory, right? And so yeah. the idea that 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 you build cognitive theories in which all these things already come together, and that might be oversimplistic, and I think I think like the, the kind of predictive processing work at the moment is is overly simplistic, but still it has this kind of uh, kind of unified kind of aspiration, um, and so 
I think one thing, if anything, uh, uh, I think that that's that's one thing I learned both from kind of reading Sebastian Watzel's work, but also kind of thinking myself about about it. And like, if anything, a theory, kind of a, a, a theory of everything called attention is just a theory of everything cognitive, kind of like attention Which just kind of permeates. a theory of a human. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Attention permeates absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, yes. And it, it's just, it's the selectivity, it's the relevance, it, it's foregrounding, backgrounding, and any kind of cognitive process involves those kind of, those, those kind of things. Um, and so, so it, it's futile to kind of carve off a little part of what we call the human mind. Say, okay, well, let's call this a few attention and let's, let's see how it works. It is really kind of it needs to explain how it how it hangs together with perception, action, and body interaction with the environment, memory, etc. Only then I think can we can we can we aspire to uh, can we yeah can we call something a unified theory of, of, of attention? Yes, I think that's what we need to rebuild the internet. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it could be a while. Um, but but but, but, but yeah. I think I think the design spirit here is to do like a little back and forth, kind of a little bit Just of a, theoretical... a better one than the current. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a kind of theoretical modifications, and then having design modifications and see how they kind of co inspire each other. We don't we don't need to first have figure out the philosophy before <laughs> we can start building better environments. I think that that, that would be that would be a bad situation. We'd be in big trouble then. We can definitely, do it incrementally. Definitely. Okay, well that's <laughs> yes, a hopeful yes. vision. I appreciate that. Yeah, and <laughs> I appreciate your fantastic work as well. I'm sure. Hopefully we'll Thanks speak again you. in the future um, because I, I found so much value in it. Um, I, it's really good to see. Um, so I'm Happy to hear. Super nice to, to be here. Yeah, thanks.